Thanks for tuning in. I'm Zach, and this is Cast Junkie, a weekly bite-sized show that gives you a look into a new podcast each week. If you're looking to help further Cast Junkie and support indie podcasts, don't forget to check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash castjunkie or join the Discord community. The link is available at castjunkie.com where you can find a full line of support indie podcast merch. Profits from the Patreon and merch sold all go back to support other people's indie podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe to Cast Junkie so you can get the next episode as soon as it drops. And rate and review us over on Podchaser or wherever you're listening to help us get our name out there. This week's review contains topics and audio clips that some may find unsettling. If you have thoughts of suicide or have PTSD, please be advised this show deals with real military veterans and their real stories. Please reach out to someone if you are having a hard time by calling the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. That number again is 1-800-273-8255. With that, let's get into this week's review. This week, we're talking about This Is War. This Is War is an extremely raw cut into, you guessed it, war. War has been part of my country since I can remember. Helicopters being shot down, nightly updates on deaths overseas, and many more devastating and life-changing moments for so many where I live and across the globe. Growing up, I always figured someday I might join the military, though I did not. I'm still curious about it, though and what it's really like over there. What it's like to know that today is probably my last day alive, and then somehow you end up coming home six months later. What drove a person to join the military over another person? And really, what drove someone to stay after their first contract was up? But the big question I've recently been asking myself is, how do they cope with it all when it's all done and said? These questions get answered in, this is war. It's raw. It's real, and honestly, it's fucking emotional, just listening. So, if you're like me and want to know, let's take a listen. Get me to, you know, not do it or anything like that. Uh, I went to Paris Island, and the first day of boot camp was actually kind of funny. They do their typical, you know, screaming at you, getting off the bus, get on the footprints, uh, all that kind of stuff. And then they send you through, uh, you know, the doors for the first time. Then you go get your gear, get your haircut. But uh, I remember when I got there, you know... I'm going to get my hair cut and they go real fast to, uh, you know, get everybody through. And I remember my hair was a little bit longer and they went to cut my hair and uh, they missed a spot. So I had a big old patch in the back of my head that they had missed. And, you know, the drill instructors were kind of like dragging me around by that. It was pretty funny. You look back at it now and you're just like, man, oh, at the time it sucked. You know, I didn't want to be dragged around with my hair. You know, (laughs) they thought it they thought it was funny. Apparently, you know, they were grabbing on it and, you know, come this way and go that way. And so I had like a little rat tail for like the first 12 hours before they finally fixed it. I had to cut it off with uh, scissors out of my sewing kit. Dunning had signed an extended contract enlisting for five years as infantry security forces. It would mean training beyond the regular school of infantry, but he felt like it would give him an edge in the post-marine world where he hoped to get a job as a police officer. Security forces often have two years of specialized work, but as 2006 ended and the U.S. prepared for the 2007 Iraq surge, infantrymen were in higher demand than security force details. So Dunning and a dozen or so other guys were pulled from the detail and shuffled back into the regular infantry with the 2-8. 
they had just gotten back from Iraq and they had a pretty crappy deployment when they were there. So that was another little culture shock when we got there as well. Cause you know, we had really not all the stuff about war that we knew about, we had seen in movies or documentaries, whatever. And these guys had just gotten back and they had a pretty uh, bad deployment. They lost a, they lost a bunch of good guys and, um, they were eager to train us, but at the same time, they were still trying to deal with all their emotions and stuff like that. So, you know, everybody's pissed off and, you know, you have all these new guys joining all these boots and you don't want to be a boot. I mean, it sucks, but everybody's got to go through it. Just hearing the stories and things like that and knowing that we were getting ready to go do that too was, like I said, it's just kind of like, damn, you know, we're here. It's time to go. So we pretty much knew we were going to Iraq when we got to 2-8, like, we were slated for that next deployment, and we immediately started doing the workup. So we knew right away that we were going to uh, to Ramadi. Ramadi was an extremely dangerous place. You know, they call it Fallujah Number Two. Very deadly, uh, very hostile environment, and that's what we that's what we were prepping for. You know, we went over there thinking that there was going to be fighting every day. It was going to be uh, hell, but we got there and ended up not being that. You know, we. We essentially just went out and found IEDs and we were more like uh, police officers there than anything else. We were just kind of like a uh, security force for them, for the people of Ramadi. The 2-8 lost two guys to an IED attack during the transition out, but Dunning was relatively insulated from the Ramadi he was expecting. It was something of a disappointment at the time, missing the chance to fight and being relegated to a glorified police patrol, which ironically was what he would have been doing anyway if he hadn't been in Iraq. Still, he came home with a sense of unfinished business and a focus on a long-term career as a Marine. I knew we were going back. I didn't know if we were going back to Iraq or Afghanistan, but I felt more like, you know, I'm, I'm thankful that, you know, as bad as it sounds, it, you know, we had we'd lost two Marines, but it could have been a lot worse, I guess, in hindsight. So I counted it as a win. There's a lot of people, they want to be part of that, you know, Combat Action Ribbon Club. Uh, I guess it's kind of like a, like I said, like a little club that everybody wants to be part of. But uh, I think everybody would much rather have their friends here. I was actually, I was actually ready to go the long haul, you know, 20 years and get out. But nothing ever goes according to plan. So, yep, I'm going to be a lifer and I was ready to go. Like, let's get this work up so we can go back. You know, we had a job to do and um, we needed to, you know, do our jobs. So I was, you know, when we got back. I was like, well, let's get ready to go to the next one. We didn't get told we were going to Afghanistan until we had just completed our combined arms exercise in California. We we had gotten done and we had our little debrief and they showed up and they said, hey, you know, we know you guys did this whole workup for Iraq, but uh, we're actually going to send another unit to Iraq and you guys are going to Afghanistan. I guess they felt like we were more combat ready than the unit that was supposed to be going there. But we were grateful. That's what we wanted. We wanted to go to Afghanistan. We knew if we went to Iraq, we were going to have another deployment like we did prior to that. Nobody wanted that. We all wanted to go and uh, fight the good fight, you could say. If the Marines were surprised by how different Ramadi was when compared with their expectations, Afghanistan certainly would meet them. Camp Bastion, a British base in the Helmand province, still was mostly under construction in 2009, and as the Marines were getting acclimatized to the heat, they were also getting a real sense of what it would be like once they started their mission out beyond the wire. They stuck us in the very back of the base. We stayed in these giant white tents. There was really nothing. I mean, it was just a giant base. And then, you know, on the other side, they had a few things built up. We got on some choppers and they sent us down to uh, 
where the British were at, and we met up with them, and uh, they started taking us out on patrols and stuff like that. <laughs> it was cool. They were awesome. They were really cool people, you know. They had MREs. We had MREs. We'd swap them out. We'd talk, share stories, and it was like hanging out with your buddies. You know, they were awesome people. We were on a night patrol with the British, and he was sweeping. He's like, oh, I got a hit here, and my point man was, was him, the guy that was doing the sweeping. You know, the British guy that, you know, you could tell they had been there for a while already because he just got on the ground and just started digging and prodding away with his little K-bar there just to f- try to, you know, find this IED. And we were all like, holy shit, what's this guy doing? He's crazy. We, so we all started backing up. And so that was kind of like a, that was kind of like a funny moment. We're just like, this guy is absolutely crazy. Just trying to prod this thing there. We were just out on a patrol and started seeing things like uh, we started finding like mortars here and there. And then I, honestly, we just started getting shot at and we, you know, we took cover and while we were there, they would just shoot at you and then run. So it was kind of like a game of a uh, cat and mouse. Shoot at you and run, shoot at you and run. And that was pretty much it for the whole deployment. So it was, it was really frustrating. The shooting and running would dominate their entire deployment. As we just heard, This Is War is stories from soldiers about their excitement, victory, and losses. Yes, they all start with the heyday of joining the military the desire and excitement to be part of something so much bigger, we hear from them how that excitement all changes when shit gets real. And they are now in active war with someone who has no respect for their lives. I've learned a lot through this show as a civilian. I've got a better sense for what my friends went through and are now fighting with once they are home. Because let's be honest, this is a war drives it home when they say the battle isn't over once you get home. Some of the veterans who have stories on This Is War have even stated that the real battle began for them when they got home. So, if you're looking for a dive into what war is like, you couldn't find a better, more graphic, or harrowing podcast than This Is War. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy listening to This Is War, or any other podcast we've previously covered, which can all be found wherever you're listening to Cast Junkie. You can find us at Cast Junkie on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. So follow us, won't you? We'll be posting links to this show and all others we cover on them. Have a podcast suggestion? Send them to us at castjunkie.com, and we'll add it to our list. Until next week, don't forget to binge all the podcasts we've been highlighting. <laughs>